Our reading today is from 1 John 2, 12 through 14, followed by 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Judith Karen. All right, well, as you can see, we're not starting the second part of the Gospel of Mark today. Today we are taking a moment to spend a little time on the question of spiritual maturity or gospel maturity, as I want to refer to it in this sermon. It is an important subject, and I believe uh, it's important to speak on today for a couple reasons. I want to speak on gospel maturity for the sake of a vision, a vision for each and every one of us to become, to pursue. Gospel maturity, gospel adulthood is the desire and the purpose that God has for us in the gospel. So I want us to have a vision as we go through this passage of what gospel maturity looks like, a vision that says, yes, I want to pursue that. I hope that it is a a vision that entices and encourages you. But also, I want to present a vision for us to use discernment. Because at the end of the worship service, we're going to have a congregational meeting, and we're going to talk about uh, starting a term uh, system for elders and deacons. And as we think about elders and deacons, I want us to have a picture of gospel maturity. So as we seek to discern who should be elders and deacons in this congregation, let us hold them up against a picture of gospel maturity so that we choose good and fitting leadership to lead us. So a couple of years ago, we had that video game system called the Wii, you know, the It has uh, uh, motion sensor controllers, and so you can play games that use your whole body instead of just sitting on the couch. And uh, one of the games, I think it was Wii Sports, was kind enough to tell you after you did a couple different things with the controllers uh, what your actual Wii age would be based on your uh, weight and height and your flexibility and your balance and a couple other things. It would take all that information, and it would report... Your age according to those factors uh, in the Wii database. And so I was uh, playing at the age of 32. I think that it told me I uh, had the stunning features of someone in their 60s. So I got a a Wii age that was quite embarrassing, uh, quite uh, different from my actual age. And what it was doing was it was was saying uh, a 32-year-old person has these features you actually have a body's fitness of somebody much older than yourself. And so the, the goal of it was to say, okay, well, I want to bring my age in line with uh, my actual age or even improve upon it. I want to be a 25-year-old again or something like that. So it was interesting. But look, it, it made me think about what, what would happen 
if there were a similar way to show our gospel maturity age. Now, in this case, you would want a higher number. You would want your gospel maturity to be decades long. The, 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 the older you are in terms of gospel maturity, the better it would be because it would show your maturity. You would be actually very mature because that is a quality. But if, if there was some kind of apparatus that we could put in all of these different features about our spiritual life and it could report back our gospel maturity age, what number would it report? Would it report a number that says, yes, you are pursuing hard after Christ? Or would it report a number that's very low, that's lower than the number of years you have been in the church, that you have been a Christian? If you've been walking with the Lord for 15 years, your spiritual maturity at minimum should say 15. But what if it come back 7 or 3 Well, that would be a concern, right? We would want to remedy that. And I think we live in a particular age in the church in America where there's not much incentive, there's not much uh, desire to pursue gospel maturity. The whole mindset of the church is built on conversionism. Get converted, and that's about all that we care about. We kind of live in a Peter Pan society We just stay young, we stay youthful. The whole idea of growing is not something that is set before us as a desirable pursuit. And so a lot of people come into the church, they're converted, and then they're kept there. And maybe you've been haunted by this question, well, now what? I've got a whole lot of life left to live, now what? I've been saved, now what? What is the purpose of being saved in the gospel? And you see, we haven't communicated that the purpose of being saved in the gospel is then to pursue gospel maturity, to pursue growing up into Christ-likeness. And it is important for us to spend some time looking at that. Because when we don't focus on that, I believe that we have been robbed of one of the greatest adventures that is given to us, the adventure of growing up. I mean, you remember when you were four and five, Growing up was the most exciting thing that you had going. You're going to grow up. You're going to drive a car. You're going to be responsible for a pet. You're going to get married. Everything that is exciting involves growing. That's what's an adventure in our life. Well, I want you to know that the Bible tells us that the greatest adventure of the spiritual life is growing up. And I want us to have the excitement of growing. And so... Uh, if you look at the front of your bulletin, you have this picture. I don't know who that little kid is, but I will tell you, this is what it looks like to see the adventure of growing up. You want to imitate your dad. You want to become your dad, and so you imitate and practice what your dad does. That, that is me, actually. I'm on the little one. Um, it's a family photo. But that's what kids get. And if we want to understand our spiritual growth, we need to have the same mentality. We need to recognize, I want to grow up. I want to be more like Christ. And that is a great adventure. You see, when the true gospel is, is preached, growth in the gospel is desired. 
And so the point for today's message is is boiled down to this. Living in the gospel means we are to be increasing in gospel maturity. Living in the gospel means we are to be increasing in gospel maturity. So what is gospel maturity? Our passage today is going to give us three characteristics of gospel maturity. And we're focusing mostly on the first passage. The passage in Corinthians will, will be uh, illustrative at the end. But in this passage in 1 John, John writes to three different audiences. He writes to little children, young men, and fathers. Now, he is not writing to a nuclear family. He is writing to the church. And he is writing to three different audiences as descriptors of different places in gospel maturity. There are some people in the church who he describes as little children. There are some people in the church that he describes as young men. And there are some people in the church that he describes as fathers. Now here's something that we have to grasp as we get into this passage. Growth is implied. Young children grow to young men. Young men usually grow to fathers. And so when we see these three descriptors, we recognize that they are on a continuum And that when we talk about gospel maturity, it is cumulative. The father possesses all the characteristics of the little child and possesses all the characteristics of the young man. So when we want to talk about what gospel maturity looks at, we recognize it is the the accumulation of all the characteristics that uh, John highlights in these three different groups. So now let us turn to these three characteristics of gospel maturity and look at characteristic number one. Characteristic number one is being secure in the gospel. Characteristic number one of gospel maturity is being secure in the gospel. Let's listen again to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then if we skip down, we see he also writes in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. So when he addresses the first audience of the children, he gives us two truths that must be grasped for us to be secure in the gospel. The first is forgiveness. And the second is our adoption. There can be no gospel maturity until we are secure in the gospel on the truths that we have forgiveness and that we are adopted. So let us look at each of those in turn. Forgiveness. Listen to these words. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In classic, concise fashion, the Apostle John has said in such simple but indisputable way, Four key truths that we must understand about our forgiveness. First of all, when we talk about the forgiveness in the gospel, it's personal. That's what we see in the word your. Your sins. That's what has been forgiven. Your sins. It's not sins generally. It's not sins generically. It's not sins of the people on the left or sins of the people on the right. It's yours. That sin that wakes you up in the middle of the night. 
That sin that embarrasses you every time it comes to your mind, that sin, your sin, that sin that you've repeated again and again and again, that sin, your sin, forgiven. Second, we see that the forgiveness that we have is complete. It's sins, your sins, all of them. Every single one of them. Not just the medium level ones and below. The big ones. The repeated ones. The embarrassing ones. The ones tomorrow. Your sins are forgiven. Third, it's permanent. Your forgiveness is permanent. And that's what we see when we look at the words are forgiven. In, in the English, we have brought that back. We have translated that into uh, the, the passive and into the past. But if we were in the Greek, we would recognize that it is a particularly significant tense of the word forgiven. It is in what we call the perfect tense. The perfect tense is so important because what it means is that this was completed entirely in the past. And it has continuing, ongoing benefits or experiences of it. But the point is that when we say you have perfect forgiveness, all the forgiveness has been completed. It cannot be undone. It is permanent. Your forgiveness is permanent. And then fourth, and perhaps most importantly, it's free. The forgiveness of the gospel is free. Why is it free? Because it's for his name's sake. His name's sake. It's not your name's sake. It's not how good you've been. It's not how much you've done to fix your sins. It's not how... uh, uh, your family has treated you. It's not your anything about you. Nothing about you has anything to do with the offer of forgiveness. You can be 10 times more rotten than you are, and you are more 10 times more rotten than you probably recognize. As your preacher, I, I hate to admit that, but uh, I've been with you a year now. <laughs> uh, 10 times more rotten than I think I am. I am. Okay, And I don't get forgiveness because I spend tomorrow doing a good job. Because I spend tomorrow checking off the Ten Commandments. Nothing I do brings me forgiveness and nothing I do voids my forgiveness. Because my forgiveness and your forgiveness is for His name's sake. The reason you are forgiven is because God looks at Christ who is perfectly righteous and who has suffered to the uttermost to pay and and cancel all of your sins. And that's the end of the discussion. The blood of Christ has been put upon you and it is for his name's sake you are forgiven. It is free. It is permanent. It is complete. And it is personal. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I was thinking as, as I was as considering those terms, especially the, the idea of the perfect passive aspect, the permanence of the, of the forgiveness. I was thinking of the movie Forrest Gump, one of my favorite movies. Forrest Gump you know, starts with these, these braces on his legs, these shackles of, of uh, metal or steel on his legs, and he, he, he can't walk, he can't do anything. And then there's this scene where these, these bullies come after him in their bikes, and they're going to they're going to throw rocks at him and torment him and do terrible things. And uh, he starts running. And a, a, a miracle happens. The, the, the movie magic, the, the, the shackles just burst off of his legs, just into a thousand pieces. And suddenly, he can run. He can outrun anything. He can run freely. That is the image of your sins are forgiven. The shackles, the prison upon your body that has kept you in bondage has been broken open and shattered to a million pieces so you can run unhindered and at full speed. Your sins can no longer be a trap, a snare, can no longer hold you back from the purpose that God has for you. They have been shattered nailed to the cross, canceled forever. Now, unfortunately, Forrest Gump used his running to support the Alabama team. But we can imagine, we can imagine if he had chosen LSU, what a different movie that would have been. Second, we understand we, when we are securing the gospel, our forgiveness, but second, our adoption. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Packer recognizes that this is the pinnacle gift of the gospel, that we have gone from sinner, reprobate, child of wrath into welcomed, beloved child of God. That we have that in the gospel. And it is worthy of our meditation, is worthy of our reflection. You mean God in heaven looks down on me and says, Beloved child, I love you. I'm pleased with you. Yes. That's what you have in the gospel. You have a great father. A great father. I think I'm a pretty good dad. I love my kids as much as I know how. I take care of them as much as I know how. I worry about them. I plan for them. But I'm a pale comparison to the perfect love of the Father for each and every one of his children. All of the love, all of the compassion, all of the joy, all of the pride, all of the satisfaction that you want your Father to have for you Your God in heaven has for you and more. Because when he looks at you, he sees the same beauty and perfection as he sees when he looks at his eternal son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Is that a freeing thought? Is that a joyous thought? What would it look like to be secure in that truth? 
Would you worry what other people think about you? Would you worry about tomorrow? Not only is he a great father, he will always be your father. I love the words from the 103rd Psalm, verses 8 through 14. These are your words. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him, his children. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Have you received the gospel? Are you secure in your sins being forgiven? Are you secure in the never-ending, never-failing love of God the Father for you? That's gospel maturity characteristic number one. Characteristic number two of gospel maturity is growing in godliness. Number two is growing in godliness. And here we look at what is said to the young men. If we look at verse uh, 14, it says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This should be obvious, but growth is the natural consequence of birth. So John wants you to understand that if you have been born into the gospel, you should be growing in the gospel. You are not born to remain a perpetual infant. You are born to grow up in the gospel. The children become young men. Forrest Gump's legs were set free to run. And we must run. How do we grow? Again, we see two features. Knowing the word. And second, defeating sin. Those who grow in godliness know the word and are defeating sin. Knowing the word. Look, it says... The word of God abides in you. Paul did a good job of talking about what abiding meant last week, but it, it means to rest, to be found, to live in. And so we are being told that those who grow in godliness live in the word of God. They're knowing it and growing in it. They're reading it. And applying it. How do we view the word? I mean, there are many preachers that come up to you. You just need to read the word. Oh, that sounds like, a, sounds like medicine. It doesn't sound all that fun. But here's what the scriptures tell us the word is. It's the shepherd's voice. 
You hear the one who laid down his life for you, speaking to you in the scriptures. It's the shepherd's voice who lays down his life for the sheep. Peter says, where can we go? Your words are the words of life. These words are the words of life. The psalmist says these words are sweet like honey. Honey. What the Bible is, it's not this dry book of rules. It's a love letter. Every guy in this room received a love letter once in their life. Well, I didn't. Um, But I imagined what a love letter would be like. What do you do with a love letter? What do you do with a letter from your lover? You read every word. You catch every cadence. You wonder why that's underlined. You, You wonder why that eye has a heart above it and that eye doesn't. You spend every amount of mental energy going over that letter, grasping every single piece of significance because you can hear your lover's voice through it. It brings your lover into the room. The Bible's a love letter to the beloved church of Christ. It's beautiful to read. It's like getting a letter from home in a, when you're in a war-torn country, when you're deployed. How much do those words mean? That's what the word of God is. It's a word from heaven given to us as exiles in this world. And so if we want to grow in godliness If the gospel is in us, if the shepherd's voice is in us, we should be marked by an insatiable hunger for the word of God. Peter tells us in his first letter, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now for those who know, and one family will know soon, When an infant wants milk, the whole world stops until that infant gets milk. There is hardly a parallel to an incessant desire and controlling focus than a newborn infant wanting milk. And the scriptures say that we should be like a newborn infant You should be cranky if the word hasn't been put into you for a while. You should get a little bit obnoxious for your time in the word because it's like newborn milk to an infant. It's like milk to a newborn infant. Crave it. Our own Savior said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying that if the word of God is not being filled into you, You are sick like a famished man. You would not deny food to yourself. Why deny the word of God? So let me ask you, as we seek spiritual maturity, does the word shape your thinking? Does it guide your prayers? Does it come out in your speech? If we are filled with the word of God, it shapes us. It forms us. It gives us the mind of Christ and we think like Christ. 
So we know the word, but if we're growing in godliness, we are also defeating sin. Now, it is important that we understand when we talk about growing in the faith, we are not talking about the gospel is stage one, and then when we grow, we move out of the gospel. The whole idea of gospel growth is growing in to the gospel, not growing out of the gospel. Spiritual growth is going deeper into the gospel so that the gospel is not just in your head, it's all over your life. Does that make sense? And if we want the gospel not just in our head, but all over our life, it better be showing itself in knowing the word and by defeating sin. And so when John talks about overcoming the evil one, he is talking about primarily overcoming sin. We see this clearly if you look at the letter just a few verses later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we're told this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You understand what's being said there. If the seed of God, the gospel, has been secured in your heart, then you are at war against sin. The sin in your life is your enemy. And you work and seek to root it out and defeat it and mortify it and overcome it. I cannot imagine someone with the seed of God's life in them being comfortable in sin. There should be a hatred that I am still dealing with sin. How am I still struggling with this sin? But there's a fight there. And there should be noticeable victory in that fight. You should not be struggling with the same sins today that were defining you five years ago. Or if they are, they should should be on the run. Hard on the run. Conversely, there should not be a whole bunch more sin in your life today as a Christian than there was five years ago. There are times where things happen, where we fall and make major mistakes, and we ask forgiveness, and we repent, and we start over. But as a general rule, as we are defeating sin, sin should be getting less and less of a claim on our life as we are growing in godliness. The appeal of worldliness should become less and less. There are two images in Scripture To think about Psalm chapter 1 verse 3 tells us of the righteous person who commits to the word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see, those who are in the gospel, living in the word, defeating sin, they are growing like the mighty oaks that we drive by. They are established, they are secure, they are mighty. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us what it's all about. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
If you are growing in the gospel, you are being transformed into one greater manifestation of glory to another. You are shining more and more of Christ's love and Christ's nature in your life as sin and darkness is being rooted out. And so as you continue to grow in the shining of glory, you are growing up. That's what this means. Young men grow up. I remember when I was about 13 or 14 years old, it was the first time that some adult looked at me and called me a young man. I loved it. Yes, I'm arriving. I'm a young man. It's the muscles and shoulders and I'm a young man. I'm growing into a man. That was a, a huge desire. As you're transforming from one image of glory to another, you're growing into Christ. And I want you to know something. There's a beautiful thing that you may hear someday. What makes you different than me? How can we see things differently? Or are you, are you a Christian? You know what that means? It means that something about how you are growing in godliness is showing itself through. And people are seeing the difference of Christ and the likeness of Christ coming through you. And there is nothing greater than somebody saying, are you a Christian? Because they watch something that you have done. But that happens as we grow. So that's the second characteristic of gospel maturity. Characteristic number three, gospel maturity. The third characteristic of gospel maturity is this, modeling the faith. Modeling the faith. So look again at what is said to the fathers. And notice if you see something peculiar. John says to the fathers in verse 13, I am running to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Then he comes back in verse 14, says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Do you notice anything peculiar there? He, he, he repeated himself. Exact same thing as the first time. And if we want to really press it, know him who is from the beginning is really not that much different than what he writes to the children. You know the father. Children know the father. Fathers know him who is from the beginning. Really, those are, are almost parallel statements. So that brings up, I think, a, a bit of a, a question. What's the difference? Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by a model. A model is a representation or a demonstration of, of a truth or a, a reality. When we talk about modeling the faith, we're not talking about perfection. We're not saying that your life has absolutely no sin in it. We don't mean that you're just seconds from rapture. We just mean that you have enough of your life put together by the gospel, that you've walked with the gospel long enough, that as people who are younger in the walk look at you, they see where they're trying to go. You're a signpost to the end. Does that make sense? So when we talk about modeling the faith, we're talking about, about this. I'm looking up at my dad, and I see what I want to become as a man. 
When we're modeling the faith, people should be able to look at us and say, well, you know what, if I'm following that person, I'm probably getting closer to Christ. That's what it means. And so when we talk about modeling the faith, that's what we're talking about. So what is required of modeling the faith? Two things. Faithfulness and other-centeredness. So let's talk about faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is the main thing that separates the young child from the father. We see that they're saying the same thing. He who knows the father versus he who is fr- knowing, knows he who is from the beginning. The similarities are very strong. But the difference, I believe, in this uh, situation comes down to this. Faithfulness. The way that the fathers know him is different than the way the young child knows the father. What is the difference? Experiential knowledge. The fathers have spent decades walking with and knowing the one who was from the beginning. The difference between the young child and the father is not much different than wedding vows. We come, we see two young people stand in front of each other, make these beautiful vows for the rest of their lives. We look at them and we're like, oh, hold on. (laughs) The ride is going to come now. And then sometimes you might get the opportunity to see a couple that's been married 50 years and they come to renew their vows. How much more do they know about the words in sickness and in health, in richer and in poorer when they say that 50 years down the road than the young couple that says it first. They have experiential knowledge. And so the blessing that fathers have to the congregation is that they are able to say, I know the promise. I've received the promise. He he sees you through cancer. He sees you through job loss. He's there on the other side of the divorce. You can know him who is from the beginning, to be faithful. You see, the mature don't just know about him. They know him. They've been with him. And the only way that happens is progressing from child to young man to fathers. It means faithfulness. It means time with him. It means commitment over season after season. The best illustration from Scripture is obviously Abraham. Abraham was not told on day one of his faith, go and take Isaac, the promised one, up the mountain. He had been walking with the Lord perhaps 30 years at that point. It is a mystery as you read the scriptures how Abraham is just able to do that. And I'm not saying it was easy for Abraham. But if we want to know how did Abraham get to a place where he says, okay, God said this, I'm going to do it. It has a lot to do with those 30 years that he had walked with him and knew him to be faithful. And so in the book of Hebrews, it says Abraham had to reason that if God told me to sacrifice the promised son, it's because God can raise the dead. God didn't say that to him. The only way Abraham knew that was by knowing him who was from the beginning and knowing him through life over seasons and seasons and seasons. The mature are those who have discovered that the greatest pursuit of life is knowing God. I love Psalm 16:11. This describes what the end of the gospel is. You make known to him the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
That's what God wants you to get in the gospel is all of your joy, all of your pleasure, all of your satisfaction is in him. Not in his gifts, in him. And the only way you get there is to pursue him, to know him who is from the beginning, through seasons after seasons after seasons. But it's a delicious reward. Second, after faithfulness, Those who model the faith demonstrate other-centeredness. It's not an accident that the word fathers is being used here. Becoming a father, there are other things that can happen in life. But for me, and I think for many, the becoming a father was a decisive moment where my life went from living my life for me to living my life for someone else. See, the word father has in it other-centeredness. Your concern is the next generation. Your concern is the child's well-being. And if it comes to the point that you have to lay down your life to secure the child's well-being, it's your life for his. That's the definition of a father. And that's where gospel maturity takes us. That's where we get to when we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which is Paul talking about himself as being a father. He's not living for his own well-being. He's not living for his own accomplishments, his own life. He's entirely other-centered. Look at, again, verse 14 says, uh, I write to you to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. The my life for yours is shown in the fact that Paul is motivated by his love for them, love for others, by his commitment to fatherly teaching, admonish. Admonish is a dad word. It means I'm coming down hard on you because I want the best for you. It's a special word. Dads admonish because they want them to come up and be a mature and full uh, grown human being. And then third and most importantly, they exemplify. Be imitators of me. I learned how to be a dad by watching my dad. A lot of baby Christians learn how to be mature Christians by watching mature Christians. That's how it's supposed to work. It's a family. And so one of the questions I guess I would have to you is, do you have a mentor in the faith? Are you, are you pouring your life out and watching the life of another as a mentor in the faith? It's so important to our gospel growth. When you look at the idea of elders and deacons in the church, it's this. It's finding those people who model the faith. If you look at the qualifications of elders and deacons and Titus or First Timothy, their qualities, their character. It's not skills, it's not abilities. It's this. Titus chapter 1 says, An overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, these are qualities, not skills. When it comes to discerning who are elders and deacons, it comes down to this. Who are those people that if you were to model yourself after, would in fact be coming more and more like Christ? So in conclusion, as we pursue gospel maturity, we must be secure in the gospel, we must be growing in godliness, and we must pursue being models in the faith. Where are you on this adventure? Where are you on this adventure? Where do you want to go? Perhaps you are here and you haven't started. You can start. It is offered to you this day. John tells us, all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe in him who came from heaven. Believe in him who fulfilled all righteousness. Believe in him who laid down his life for your sins and rose again. Trust in him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And you are a child of God. And the adventure of spiritual growth, of gospel maturity, begins today. Perhaps though you are here and you're stalled. Perhaps you feel like you're just steady. You're not moving forward. The invitation to gospel maturity is still wide open. Even Paul the Apostle tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every single one can begin the next stage of their gospel maturity, forgetting what lies behind, press on towards the goal, seek knowledge from the word, Fight your sin. You will grow. Pursue Christ. He is faithful and he will finish what he has started in you. Amen.